All right, welcome to another episode of The Bible Guys. My name is Rick Kleinert. I'm joined here with Jerry. Jerry, you said that today you received a pretty awesome compliment. You want to share that with our listeners? I did. This morning there was a guy at our house fixing a gas leak, actually three of them. That's kind of terrifying. Uh, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought the house was going to blow up, but three gas leaks in the attic. Somehow we were talking about, he was talking about how his back hurt, and I was talking about how others joints on you know I have that hurt my body's falling apart but I just mentioned I just turned 60 and he said man I never would have thought you were 60 mm. you you look a lot younger and you you talk younger so I said man that is that is going to carry me through the day that was a great compliment so not to bring it down was this before or after you paid him this was before um <laughs> Yeah, I, I knew it was going to be a lot, but <laughs> it was way more than I, I thought it would be. Right. But yeah. it's either that or the house blows up. Well, I think so. you look I think you look young, man. I was just thinking a couple actually yesterday, um, a lot of our listeners, you know, some of our listeners are former teachers or former students of ours. Um, but some of our listeners have never met you, all they know is you from the logo. And mm. uh, we both look like we well, I'm bald and you have <laughs> you know, what I'm gonna call it the um the, the the gentlemanly grayer hair, hair than than others, but um okay so real fun fact I'm gonna show share it with you somebody I don't know where I saw it but it was like a video somebody put it on either so some social media thing and it was an old 1990s Ric Flair during professional wrestling and he had your haircut and I thought man if that guy if Ric Flair had a had a goatee he had my haircut he had your hairstyle I thought man if he had Jerry's goatee that would be the Bible guy right there. Oh man, that's horrible. <laughs> All right, but I'm not going to ask you to do woo into the mic. But that'd be awesome. <laughs> All right, so Jerry, we got an email from a listener wanted to ask our opinion on something. Before we get into that, I, I thought I'd share kind of where, um, once you sh- once we saw that email, once we knew that this is coming from, we're, what I'm seeing is a trend in social media. Um, so for example, I think it was this past summer, um, I was where I shouldn't be. You'd never be on social media. It's a cesspool. Oh, I have no interest whatsoever. Right. So, I, so I'm on social media, and I'm looking at somebody tweeted or whatever a uh, statement. And the question was, you could tell somebody was fishing. They were, they were baiting the hook, and they said, when did Jesus ever speak on a certain topic? And I think in this one it was uh, homosexuality. The question was, when did Jesus ever talk about it? Well, someone responded with, well, here Paul talks about this in uh, Romans. And the response was, that's Paul. What about Jesus? And then uh, another person mentioned Moses in, in Leviticus, and they said, that's Moses. What about Jesus? And so they, it went on back and forth till finally the, the person who made the tweet said, there it is. Je- since Jesus never spoke about something, why are we making a big deal about stuff? And so the argument is, if the red words don't say it, why do we worry about it? And again, we can get all into the idea that what, what this person is missing about the, the continuity of Scripture and how it's not just the, the words of Jesus and then you got Paul's opinion, but rather you have guys like James and John and Paul. They are taking Jesus' teachings and applying it to everyday life. So the email we got was kind of about that. You want to share the, with our listeners about the email? Yeah, interesting lead into this this email. Um, now I want to talk about that question. It's a good one. Because it is a good one, and Jesus did address it. But I know that's not our point. But I was really excited about this email because I'm almost positive I know the source of it. And this takes me back, man, it could be some 15 years or so where I used to teach. And 
the question was basically asking if there is a connection between the upper room discourse in John 14 to 16 and the first epistle to John. And I think there is a very important connection between the two passages. In fact, I think that connection really helps us to solve one of the most discussed issues on First John, and that is uh, what its purpose is. Yeah, and the fir- this isn't the first time, and by any means the only time, a New Testament author takes from the teachings of Jesus and writes a whole letter. So, for example, right. the one that pops in my head is Jesus' half-brother James. The letter of James is, a, is an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. So here we have First John as kind of an explanation of the Upper Room Discourse. So let's get into what are the specifics, how do you see the parallels? Yeah, I, the reason I think this is important, as I said, is because of the debate concerning the purpose of First John. And it is very common for a lot of people to hold that First John is presenting tests of life. And by that, they mean that John is presenting a series of tests one can apply to their life, and if they pass those tests, so to speak, then that is a a proof that they are a true Christian. Uh, I think there are a number of problems with that position. One of the major ones is simply the way John addresses his readers. He, He uses endearing terms, which one could only use for a fellow Christian, And in fact, in chapter 2, he writes in verse 12, I write to you little children. Uh, Again, that that description would indicate they're saved. But I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven. I write to you fathers because you have known him. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. So there's no question on John's part whether these people are saved or not. He knows that they are. And what he is going to tell them has to do with them being in a saved condition. And so here's the, the connection that I see. If, if you look at the beginning of 1 John, in verse 3, he will talk about that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then John says this, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. And so what I'm suggesting is that John is writing to people he knows they are saved, and his intent in writing to them is that they may enter into a more joyful fellowship with God. Mm -hmm. And the way that connects with the Upper Room Discourse is in John 14 to 16, very importantly at this point, Judas has left, so no one can say, well, he might be addressing Judas here. Judas has gone, and Jesus begins to address the 11, and he uses, you know, the identical themes that will be developed in 1 John. For example, he will talk about abiding. He will talk about keeping the commandments. Uh, There's a massive inclusio in the Gospel of John, bracketed with this idea of loving each other, loving fellow disciples. Well, when you come to 1 John, you find the same kind of themes, walking in the light, um, being in fellowship with God, keeping the commandments, loving, loving the brethren, fellowshipping with the brethren. And so I think when we see this important connection between the two passages, that just adds to, to my conviction that 1 John is written to true believers 
with the intent of getting them to uh, advance in their fellowship with God and with each other. Yeah, I would agree. And again, as we spoke before we went on air, this is a book I've taught an awful lot. Matter of fact, when I, as a new believer, about a year into being a believer, being asked to teach the church where I was at their youth group, we went through First John. Mm-hmm. And there was never a doubt as you're reading through First John, yeah, he's talking, about, he's talking to believers here. They're, they're meant to bolster and encourage. And the word that keeps popping out, you know, some people who like to use keywords of a book or whatever, I like to say frequently used word in this book, John seems to use is fellowship. Mm-hmm. And that word fellowship is really, I'm going to use the word just pregnant with meaning. It's just got yes. So the, um, the, the Greek word koinonia, um, not sure which um, li- linguistic apparatus I used for this. It's been so long, I don't remember which one it was, but it was the idea of, it's the kind of relationship where you love what another loves, you hate what another hates, and you seek to include that one in all you do. Um, by modern vernacular, this is your BFF. You know, this is somebody you want. And it's like, if you've got that kind of fellowship with God, this is what should come out of your life from, from that fellowship. If you're loving what God loves, you're going to hate darkness. If you hate what God hates, you're going to you know, love. Well, I should say it this way. If you love what God loves, you're going to love others. You're going to love the brothers. If you hate what God hates, you're going to hate the darkness. And so you see that all through this letter. Yeah, that's a really good point because a lot of what John is going to do, he's going to present obstacles to growing in fellowship with God. And those are the kinds of things from which they're going to need to to steer away. And I think one of the things, I guess there are several things that might trip people up with this approach to First John, but some of them are that when we see the word life, or the phrase eternal life, we just make the assumption that the text is speaking about that initial moment when we trusted Christ for salvation. But what we will find in John's writings is that while he does use the term life and the terms eternal life that way, and while he will talk about believing for eternal life in a, in a salvific, justifying sense, he will often use them in a Christian life sanctification sense. And so the believer needs to continue believing. Uh, Life is a growing experience. It's not just something that God implants in us at regeneration, but it is something that needs to progress. It can falter from time to time. It's something we need to feed. As you said, there are things we need to avoid. But life, eternal life, belief, those are not always associated with that initial moment of salvation but the continual process of, of sanctification. And I think if people would read the Upper Room Discourse and First John with that in mind, that would really help them to understand the material. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what you said earlier there. You said what John, produ- what John presents in this letter are some obstacles. What would be some of the obstacles from First John that could trip up a follower of Christ? Well, I think one of the major ones that comes to mind, and this comes to mind because I was doing a lot of grading this morning, uh, just for example in chapter 2 when he says not to love the world. I mean, that is extremely difficult. Love not the world nor the things that are in the world. Those things, and you know, you can make a huge list about what that entails, but all of those things can pull us away from walking in fellowship with Christ. Another one I want to mention here, and as you, you said, um, that the Christian life is one of these where we're, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to mess up. First John talks about this all through it. 
Um, you know, the idea first verse one, uh, the idea of if if we claim we have let me just use for example uh, verse seven where it says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have um, fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. And then if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. Um, and then he's, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And one of the big passages that has always stuck out to me from First John is, is found in First John chapter 3, and it starts in verse 19, and, and I'm, here's what it says. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So I'm going to stop there for a minute. You and I both have talked before, both on the podcast and our own time, in our own lives, those moments of, man, we struggle, struggle with where we are, struggle with where we are in the faith even. Yes. And, and there's that, you know, doubting, if you want to use the term doubting salvation or whatever, you know, if I'm a believer, how could I have done this or how mm-hmm. could I not do this? But I love this line in verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. That, that verse has always brought me comfort, especially here. That has always brought me comfort. I don't feel it. I don't feel it because I've just said this or done this or acted this way, or I'm not feeling like everybody else. Sometimes I'm the everybody else is having this emotional experience about the worship, and I'm going, and what time do the Panthers play? And yeah. I'm kind of feeling that. And those are the moments where I'm like, man, what's wrong with me? Well, right here, my heart's condemning, mm-hmm. but God's greater than my heart. God knows. God, you know, that's the, com- that's the comfort to me. God knows where I'm at. I don't have to worry about my own feelings. It's more than a feeling. It's, it's what God knows to be true. Yeah, I quoted Boston. Yes, there. I you caught like that? that. I love the Boston yeah, quote. It's, it's got to be that, and I'm, mm-hmm. it's more than that. It's, it's God knowing my heart, and that brings me comfort because, you know, there might become a day where I, I'm not in my right mind anymore due to age, whatever, and, you know, you mentioned 60. I'm rolling into 45 this week, and so... I don't know what's going to happen, but that God is greater than my heart. He's got me in his possession. I don't have myself in his possession based on my behavior, based on how I feel. Yeah, and one of the reasons John had to write this book is that as Christians, even as mature Christians, there are times when the truth is not in us, when we are not abiding or dwelling in him and in his commandments. And I think that's what he's indicating here, these, these practical, experiential times when we either are walking in obedience and confidence or we're not, and, and we all experience those from time to time. That doesn't mean we're not saved. This isn't a test that, oh, I may not be saved because of that. But no, there are times, because of our frailties, maybe quite apart from sin, or maybe sometimes because of sin, uh, we have willingly departed from God and, and begun to walk in darkness. Um, then we're going to suffer certain consequences, and we're not abiding in the truth. Uh, another obstacle I see John presenting in the book is uh, false doctrine. Mm-hmm. He's going to warn them against false teachers and antichrists, and particularly in the first century, those who denied that Christ came in the flesh— so false doctrine is extremely important to be aware of because if we're not aware of it, we can get easily sucked into it, and that's going to pull us away from a growing fellowship with God. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Antichrist part because in John, in, in John's literature, he mentions the name Antichrist 
you never see it in the book of Revelation. I like to tr- I like to trick my students. I'm like, okay, where do we see the the word Antichrist? And I put Revelation. They're like, oh, that one. I'm like, nope, never. That's you, right. <laughs> you 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 only see it in John, and when it's described in John, it's it's the one who denies that Jesus has come in flesh, that he was um, both human and divine. Uh, we find this. You know, uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but you wrote the book on it, so you can tell me who was the who was the who was the early heretic that John saw in the bathhouse and said, "Let's get out of here, otherwise this place is going to fall upon itself." Oh yeah, Circius, Circius, for some reason, Serenthus, Serenthus. I I can't remember exactly. It's something yeah. like that. Serenthus, uh-huh. Serenthus is in my head. I think that's the one. But but because he was a denier of the truth, and so what John does in his literature is anyone who denies Jesus as as both God and man is is the is the spirit of the Antichrist mm-hmm. because it's the it's the anti Jesus the anti-Christology that he's been trying to teach. That's right. And um, so I like to use that in there. Um, but you also mentioned with the idea of the false teaching, um, he, he doesn't leave the people without how to discern false teaching from true teaching. In, first, in you know, chapter 4, yes. he gives them the litmus test, you know, just test all the spirits. You know, he says right here in verse uh, 1, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone in the world, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This, as he says, is the Spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, this is the, the test. You know, is this teaching from a false teacher or a, good te- or a solid teacher? All right, what does that teacher now believe about Christ? You test it that way. And if it's against the biblical record of who Jesus is and the revelation that he's given us, then you have to pitch it. Yeah, and, and this really, too, has a huge theological implication. And I don't know if we've talked about it before on this podcast, but I'm pretty sure both of us would not agree with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And one of the reasons some people never persevere, in my opinion, is they're saved but never discipled. Mm. And then they're picked up by some cult or false religion, and and they end up getting sucked into this thing, and then that becomes all they know, you know, the rest of their life. And one could argue, well, they were never saved because they didn't persevere in the in the faith. They never had a chance to. And I think there are individuals like that whose growth has been stunted because they've been sucked into these false movements. And even a lot of Christians today getting, you know, just carried away with a lot of the nonsense on on television and a lot of false preachers. And so, man, John has to warn them, look, these are the problems in, in our day, and you need to be aware of these things, or this will be an obstacle for you. Yeah, John-centered, he focuses on a Christ-centered theology. It's, it's all Christological. Christological. Mm-hmm. It's all about Christ. And if, if that teacher doesn't magnify Christ, get rid of him. Um, and we could do, I mean, this could be a whole other episode of the podcast, what kind of modern day, I'm going to say the word heresies, yeah. go against magnifying Christ. They magnify a, I'm going to say, they mention Jesus, but they magnify a very man-centered view of Jesus. And when, when you look at the biblical record of who Jesus is, who he says he is, what the Bible says he is, and what he did, you cannot come away with a, you, you got to remove yourself. Let me just give one. You take the prosperity gospel view of Jesus, that Jesus was here to show you um, 
by faith how to have success. You know, you will use that term. You know, it's it's the idea that if God loves you, He's going to bless you, and if if you're not being blessed, it must be a sign of God's lack of love. When you study Jesus, that's the Pharisees' religion. You know, matter of fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which I don't believe is a parable. I believe it's an actual story. He tells the story of, the rich, of rich man Lazarus. And he says, hey, a rich man dies and goes to hell. But he says in the very beginning of the passage in Luke, it says, he told this to the Pharisees who trusted in their riches because their view was, my riches are a sign of God's blessing. Right. So, right. so Jesus smacks the prosperity gospel right there in the gospel of Luke, telling them that, hey, I know a rich man who died and went to hell. Your wealth mm-hmm. can't save you, boys. Mm-hmm. has nothing to do. And so that is a false view of Jesus, the fact that he's going to give me stuff if, if he loves me. If, if that's true, then God's got to apologize to all the disciples because of what they went through in the early church up till 313 AD when Constantine made the church legal. So you just see a lot of false Christs in those kinds of, in those kinds of teachings. Yeah, and one of the problems at, at John's time was this uh, issue with Christ's humanity that the material was somehow sinful, and so for a lot of people there was a difficulty in having this theanthropic person, you know, made up, well, made up is probably a bad, <laughs> bad term, but this, individ- this theanthropic person who, who was deity and added humanity to that deity, that presented a problem, and I think a lot of that is behind what John talks about, this coming in the flesh issue. Um, there was another point I wanted, wanted to make, and that is when we talk about progressing in fellowship and knowledge of God and, and abiding, abiding, as Jesus put it in the Upper Room Discourse, we need to understand that this is not something that is automatic. It's not something we drift into, but we have to consciously decide to obey, really moment by moment. And in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus will use uh, several imperatives about what the disciples are to do. In fact, he tells them to abide in him. That's that's an imperative. Mm-hmm. If they don't do it, it won't be done. And John is going to do the same thing in the first epistle. Look, you have to make a conscious effort to to obey the commandments and to walk in fellowship with God. Another interesting tie-in to this in the Upper Room Discourse is the use of that word remain, mm-hmm. um, the Greek uh, minnow, minnow, which... which he only he uses there and here, and you see that. So it's like, okay, so we, we have a consistency. John's upper room recording of the upper room discourse is not um, lacking in some kind of, I would say, a, a, it's, a tied, it's tied in here to this discourse through that. Um, yeah, and, and bringing that up again, I'm glad we, glad we just, dis- so for example, this is uh, verse thir- chapter 4, verse 13. Again, he was after the false teaching passage. He says, um, this is how we know that we live in him. You know, some, mm-hmm. that's, that's how it says it. And he in us. There is the whole, he's given us his spirit. Another thing that, that Jesus refers to, um, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we, we see again these, it seems like what, uh, if I can use this, you have Jesus' sermon, I'm sorry, the Upper Room Discourse. First John comes in almost like a commentary on the upper room discourse, saying, okay, here's some more info. Mm-hmm. This will help you get what Jesus, not, not that you need to get it, but this is going to be, this will add to your understanding what Jesus is talking about. This is more where like the, the feet hit the ground in this teaching. Yeah, and I think one of the, talk about feet hitting the ground, one of the most sobering 
passages in the epistle and applications come in uh, verse 28 of chapter 2 when he says, And now, little children, abide in him. So notice he's telling believers to abide in him, to, to remain in him. And again, this is a this is an experience this is experiential language. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not this isn't the Pauling use of being in Christ. Uh, we can live in him or not live in him. But he says, Little children, abide in him, and then he gives the reason for this, the purpose for this, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed, really the sense is not be put to shame before him at his coming. So, I mean, a lot is at stake here. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to keep in mind that, that we need to remain in fellowship, looking forward to that second coming so that we will have confidence when that time arrives. This, whenever we mention First John, I, I can't help but think of my wife's uh, mother, Linda, passed away about uh, maybe now 11 years ago. And I remember uh, I was one of those guys that got up early, usually when we were visiting, had one of the babies with me, and I'm getting up and feeding and taking care of the baby while, you know, Linda's awake because Linda wants to be up with us to hang out with grand, the grandkids. So we're up at their house, and Linda and I got to talking about um, Scripture. And she mentioned, she goes, my favorite passage has always been in First John 5. She says, and she's quoted it verbatim to me. She was like, First, first John 5, 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. It's a gift. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And here it is. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. They already believe that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So she said it right there. She's like, look, he's talking to believers. But sometimes believers kind of get this idea of, well, do I really know for sure? Like, for example, my grandmother was... um, in a domination of primitive Baptists mm. where you didn't, you know, she, she was taught by teachers. You don't, I mean, you can trust in G, you trust in Jesus, but you don't know you're going to get to heaven. You don't have eternal life until you get there. And I remember talking to my grandmother going, grandma, you know what the Bible says? All you have to do is put your faith in Christ. Well, I know Rick, but you don't know till you get there. Now my grandmother's in heaven right now. Why? Because she believed in Jesus. I believe that when she closed her eyes in death, she opened them, and she was with Christ, and Christ probably said something to the effect of, Margaret, you didn't have to worry. I had you the whole time. Mm-hmm. You, were, you bought into a false teaching, and it, was, it, was, I w- it wasn't damning, but it was definitely debilitating because she lived in fear of God's love or fear of God's wrath and not his love. Right there it says it. We, this is how we know we have eternal life. This, you know, we already believe in the name of Son of God, and now we know we have eternal life. It's the whole book. Yeah, I agree. And I think the false teachers were telling them they couldn't have that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so John is building up their confidence. Well, that's been another episode of the Bible Guys. Thank you for that question. As always, you can send us a question through your through our email, and it's at bobbleguyspodcast at gmail.com. Please also hit us up on Instagram or Twitter, at bobbleguyspod, both usernames uh, for both of those groups. Uh, if you have a question, please submit those. We'd love to tackle those in an upcoming episode. We also have, uh, as we like to do in every season, kind of a, uh, a potpourri, I know you love me using that word, of different <laughs> questions. Maybe they won't take a whole episode, but we can answer these questions. And as we were talking, Jerry, this popped in my head, and we'll go ahead and put us on air for it. Nice to put you on the spot. What if, what if we did a whole five-point series under how we interpret 
the tulip. Oh, I'd love it. All right. Well, I would absolutely love it. All right. So listeners, look out for that, a five-part series on how we interpret each of those uh, conversation or each of those topics uh, with between the Calvinist Armenian debate on the tulip, because we know, you know, really, Jerry, there's not enough voices out there talking about it. Uh, yeah, this, this thing hasn't been covered much at all. <laughs> maybe, maybe we could fix this. All right. Well, that's been another episode of the Bible Guys for Jerry Hollinger. I'm Rick Kleinard. We'll catch you next time.